You're listening to Hard Hat History. This is the second episode in our two-part series on the Golden Age of Aviation. This time we're going to be talking about the 1934 Melbourne Centenary Race. So for the benefit of anyone who didn't listen to the last episode or listened to it so long ago that they forgot. What we were talking about there was the Great Air Race, which took place in 1919, and it was a race from England to Australia in an aeroplane. What we're going to be talking about today, another race. This is called the McRobertson Race. It took place in 1934, and it's, guess what, a race for aeroplanes from England to Australia. This was organised by a civilian flight club in England, the Royal Aero Club, it was yeah d- distinct from the 1919 race which was really for australian airmen who had come over to fight in the european theater of the first world war the actual requirements of the race were similar you had to fly from raf milton hall all the way to a designated spot in melbourne which is about uh, 18000 kilometers and you had to stop along the way in baghdad allahabad singapore darwin and charleville queensland Aside from that, it was it was uh, up to yourself, even though they, they set out lots of stops along the way for uh, refueling and things. You'll see as we go through the episode, the technology really did advance quite a lot between 1919 and 1934, but uh, there's still a very long way from one-shot flight from uh, England to Australia. Still, uh, as you'll see, they managed to cut the time down considerably. Rules were fairly lax. There was uh, no requirements on the plane or the crew, except that you couldn't add in extra pilots after leaving England. You had to have a certain number of things for safety. That that just meant food, smoke signals, uh, floats in case you had to ditch over water. There were prizes for the fastest journey from RAF Milton Hall to Melbourne. And there was also formula for any plane that showed up within 16 days based on a handicap, they might also win a prize. And so so for the handicap, was it something like you didn't have to necessarily count time spent at an airport, not in the air? I'm assuming what that is, is for people who weren't trying to do the sprint style mm-hmm. like approach to the race. Because I, I know the KLM, the Oiver, mm-hmm. fulfilled like a normal passenger route on the way to Australia. <laughs> yeah. So I'm Jeez. guessing it's for it's for entrants like them. Uh, who weren't going to be like the you know Scott and and Campbell Black in the DH mm-hmm. idiot comet, who yep. were just just looking to do the sprint finish. In, so in in fact, spoilers: the team that won did so in seventy one hours, and that was the sprint fastest time, full stop. And then the winner of the handicap division was this plane we'll talk about more, Oiver, which uh, actually just came in after eighty one hours. So ten hours in the difference, which isn't too bad considering that. Uh, they carried passengers. It's very impressive. Mm-hmm. impressive. And I, I think the total time the Oiver spent traveling, so that's including routes that weren't directly to the finish line of the race, was about 90 hours. Mm-hmm. So if it, you're talking 81 hours involved in doing the race, then they must have spent about nine hours doing other things, maybe waiting at an airport or going... Refueling. On a, a refueling or going a non-direct route. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's only about 10 hours over what the Grosvenor House, what Scott and Campbell Black did in the Grosvenor House. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for comparison, the, the second place in the handicap division went to uh, a plane called My Hildegard, and that was 120 hours. 
So it was really quite the feat for the Oliver to do it in eight, eight, just 81 hours. I actually have the original, this is the, the pamphlet, the pilot's brochure that was handed out to the competitors. So I'm just having a look through the rules here. There's, there's a lot of kind of specific rules, but they're, they're not interesting, I promise. Let me um, read you just uh, a small section from the pilot's brochure to give you an idea of what sort of thing was in it. Yeah. And it it's also helps us work out what the rules were. They say, aerodrome control officers will supervise refueling in order to ensure the following priority, blah, 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 blah. Contestants in the speed race will be given priority over competitors in the handicap race. In the case of competitors flying in the handicap race only, a competitor desirous of proceeding on the next stage of the route immediately may be given preference over competitors electing to remain at the control and checking point overnight by mutual agreements between the competitors and control officer. So what we learned from that is that there were two competitions, the speed race and the handicap race, even though competitors were free to enter both and Desirous uh, is a lovely word, which is unfortunately seemed to have, seems to have fallen out of use since 1934. So just for a sense of scale here, the prize offered in 1918 was £10,000, uh, £10,000 British pounds. If you put that into the stock market so that it grows with inflation, then that would be worth about £550,000 today. Whereas if you did the same with £15,000 prize from 1934, uh, you would have a million pounds. So it feels like a kind of a similar number, but it's actually uh, about double, about double in, in you know, 2019 uh, English pounds, which is impressive. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for back then. The 1919 era seems to have been mainly funded via Billy Hughes and his own fundraising, whereas the 1934 grid era, uh, it's McPherson Robertson at like a, a private... Uh, wealthy Australian businessman who funded the entire thing. Of course the, the invisible hand is always hanging around here and the idea between uh, McPherson Robertson and the Mayor of Melbourne is that it would increase travel to Melbourne. It would be an, a, you know, a, a tourism ad for Melbourne, which I think it was. I think it was quite successful. It was watched worldwide and everyone got to know, you know where, where the plane was landing. And The requirements was that the entire journey had to be finished within 720 consecutive flying hours or 30 days which which did end up being completed by the the smith smith brothers and the vickers vimy uh, and when you look at the 1934 race the winners the scott and campbell black in their um dh88 comet grosvenor house finished the race in 71 hours which is yeah a huge improvement considering yeah so so between 1919 and 1934, 15 years. So that's short enough that somebody could uh, compete in both races, and yet the the yeah the time to get from England to Australia has come down by a factor of ten, which is which is obviously huge for you know somebody who's interested in say visiting Australia. It no longer takes thirty days to get there. So obviously through that, in addition to the route being proven in 1919, you you would have had massive improvements in aviation technology first world war and then into the 20s through the 30s the original idea for this race comes from sir harold gengut smith who at the time was the lord mayor of melbourne he got in contact with sir mcpherson robertson the wealthy owner of the mcrobertson confectionery company who put up a prize of fifteen thousand pounds they then went to the royal aero club of britain 
the Royal Aero Club wrote out a series of rules and organised for these various stops to be present along the way. The official ending point of the race is... Well, I guess the 1919 race didn't actually use this as a, an official ending point, but do you remember that they had like a public reception at the race course in Melbourne? Um, it's Yeah, Flemington Racecourse is, is the name of it. So yeah, the, the same place the Smith Brothers were presented with their, with their prizes at the end of the, uh, the original Great Air Race is the, the final stopping point uh, in Melbourne for the 1934 race. What I want to tell you about first is... Uh, the the two most exciting planes in the race. These are the winners of both categories, the speed category, you know, how how quickly can you make it, and the handicap race, whereby uh, a formula relating the the size of the engine and the wingspan of the plane was taken into account so that slower planes, which were flown well, would, would in in theory, have a chance. The winner of the outright speed race was uh, a de Havilland 88 Comet called Grosvenor House, and that was flown by Scott and Campbell Black. They took two days, 23 hours and 18 seconds. The handicap was won by the next fastest plane, the Oiver, which was a Dutch passenger plane operated by KLM Airlines, flown by Parmentier, Moll, Prince and Van Brugge, and carrying three passengers. They, they finished in 81 hours, 10 minutes. Yeah, so those two planes you just mentioned there, uh, the winner of the overall race and handicap uh, portion of the event, respectively, the de Havilland 88 Comet Grosvenor House and the Douglas DC-2 Oiver. As we've mentioned, the Grosvenor House finished the race in 71 hours, which is an order of magnitude less than the limit for the 1919 race. Even though the Oiver was carrying passengers and fulfilled uh, normal air routes on the way to Australia they actually only took about 19 hours extra overall getting to Melbourne from London which is pretty impressive impressive. because the Comet the Grosvenor House was obviously focused on speed with only two crew and the shape of the airplane being a much smaller airplane than the Douglas DC-2 but for KLM the Dutch airline in the Oiver it's it's a, a pretty impressive uh, accomplishment to finish the race so quickly after the outright winner. Yeah. Them yeah. them them being um, in a sense like a, a regular airliner fulfilling its normal route. In in fact, uh, we should point out as well that it was uh, it was a pretty ballsy move on on behalf of KLM. If you imagine, you know, you were taking say some transatlantic flight today, and the pilot mentioned, "Oh, by the way, you know, this is part of a race where we're actually <laughs> racing." Now. Uh, I think that wouldn't fly, uh, as it were. Maybe if you got a discounted ticket. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't know if they actually paid for their... Uh, I suppose they must have paid KLM. Two other competitors, I think, worth mentioning um, in this race are Ray Pair, who flew a ferry fox, um, withdrew from the race in Paris, but uh, later ended up completing the race. Out of... Well, I say completed the race. He ended up reaching Melbourne outside of the, the stipulated time frame. But you may recognize Ray's name from the 1919 race. Ray Perrer and his co-pilots, uh, John C. McIntosh, completed the original Great Air race in 206 days. So it, it looks like Ray Perrer didn't manage to finish within the required time frame in either of the races. So not that impressive after all. Well, there were quite a lot of people who didn't finish either race 
So finishing both of them is still pretty good. As well as the as well as Per and Hemsworth, you may have noticed or you may remember in in the trailer that we released prior to the first part of this episode, there was a clip from the start of the race in Mildenhall, and the commentator mentioned some of the planes flying off. So Jim and Amy Mollison are mentioned. Amy Mollison being Amy Johnson, who was a quite well known female aviator at the time she was the first woman to fly solo from london to australia and in this race had entered with her husband jim mollison they didn't end up completing the race i believe they had engine trouble in their de havilland 88 comet the same type of airplane that won the race the grosvenor house the mollison's plane was called black magic so yeah they they were mentioned if you listen to our trailer as the first competitors to set off and were in the lead early on, but sadly never completed the, the race and seemed to have engine trouble over India and had to depart from the race there. And I think that the plane Pusmath, which will come up later, that the Mollisons didn't use it in the Great Air Race, but they had used it previously to cross the Atlantic, which is impressive. I th- you know, there, there weren't many of these planes capable of these really long trips at the time. The Pusmath, being a de Havilland 80. Looking down through the competitors of the McRobertson Air Race, you would notice that de Havilland seems to have fairly strong representation amongst the manufacturers. So we have already mentioned that it was the de Havilland Comet, the Grosvenor House, flown by Scott and Campbell Black, that won the race. In addition to that, there were two other de Havilland-built planes that finished the race. Mm -hmm. And... You're only talking about, what, about nine planes total finished, three of them being to Havilland's. Pretty good. That's, yeah, yeah. Like that, 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 that would seem like a pretty good number for them. Uh, outside of the de Havilland Comet that we just mentioned, you had the de Havilland 80 Postmoth, known as My Hildegard, and that was flown by Jimmy Melrose. Yeah, um, the Australian... Who, yeah, so one of one of one of only two um, entrants in this race that were Australian. So a lot less Australian representation in this race than the first race in 1919. Now, obviously, the the original Great Air Race was limited to Australian aviators, so that would be a, a big reason behind it. But still, it's interesting enough to see that, yeah, you only had two Australian pilots out of, what, the guts of 20 um, entrants overall? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the other uh, de Havilland that completed the race was the de Havilland 89 Dragon Rapide, known as Tanwi, flown by J.D. Hewitt and C.E.K. And F. Stewart, actually. So you had a three-man crew for the uh, Dragon Rapide, and those guys were from New Zealand. That's right. The, the other de Havilland that entered this race, but uh, it's considered not classified because, as we mentioned, it didn't finish, was that other to have an idiot comet black magic flown by jim mollison mm-hmm. and amy johnson and in, in defense of the the plane itself the the reason that it, it burnt out over india was that they couldn't get proper airplane fuel and filled it up with petrol uh, which i don't know like it's like if you put diesel into your petrol car it's not going to go well in this race out of 20 planes that competed three of them were de havilland 88 comets so, what's so special about this plane? The yeah, DH-88 yeah. Comet was developed specifically for the McRobertson Air Trophy. 
it was a man called A. E. Hag who was the chief designer of the comet for um, Jeffrey de Havilland and was key to the innovative stressed skin construction that debuted on the comet. The, the skin was made out of laminated strips of wood that were fitted into a mold that went around the aircraft. So the benefit of this was this method involved nowhere near the same size and weight that would be uh, associated with conventional techniques and is actually still used today in modern aircraft. And I think another name for it was uh, stress skin cantilever was crucial to the success of the Comet. By the way, it's maybe worth just quickly mentioning the plane that de Havilland made that people are probably most familiar with is the Mosquito, the Second World War bomber. And it was very much a follow-on from the Comet. It looks very similar. It's a wooden construction, which was unusual at that point in the 40s. But it was of great benefit to the RAF because, of course, all metals like aluminium and steel and things were in short supply. And being able to make a plane out of wood was actually quite handy. The De Havilland Mosquito was quite a cool-looking aircraft as well, if I remember mm-hmm. rightly. And it's not like t- a sleeker version of the Comet. It does resemble the the comet a little bit doesn't it some of the numbers that the Havilland were aiming for with the comet were a cruise speed of 200 plus miles an hour a range of 200 plus miles and the another stipulation was there had to be at least three orders made by i suppose outside interests in the plane for um the Havilland to to go ahead with um production by 1934, de Havilland had been around for 14 years, or in around 14 years. Um, it was established in 1920 by Jeffrey de Havilland, who had worked as an aircraft designer at Airco. So we had mentioned an Airco uh, aircraft in the previous podcast about the 1919 Great Air Race, the Airco DH-9, uh, the DH in that standing for de Havilland. Even though Airco was a separate company that he actually was employed by, his name was on the plane as chief designer. So one of the aspects of the um, comet that A.E. Hag focused on was uh, reducing drag as much as possible because they understood with a reduced drag, um, you could use smaller, more efficient engines, which obviously would be beneficial in a situation where you're trying to fly from, from London to Australia. In particular, you uh, would be able to stop less frequently to refuel, and I mean that's that's the most time-consuming part, really. Otherwise, you're just flying in a straight line. It's clear from early on with the comet, in addition to long-range, long-distance travel and being able to travel farther without stopping, as you just mentioned, that yeah, it's, speed was one of the most important things, um, as well as that. They thinned out the wing as much as possible, uh, so there were no struts or bracing bracing wires uh, externally on the wing, which is in aid of a sleeker aerodynamic profile, I guess. In addition to retractable landing gear, it certainly wasn't the first plane or one of the um, first planes to have retractable landing gear, but was still relatively innovative in airplane travel. There were flaps as well. I think flaps and variable pitch propellers were two of the other major innovations made with the um, the Comet. And uh, variable pitch per- propeller, if you're if you're wondering what that means, it means that the the blades of the propeller can be changed in in their relative tilt. So if they're cutting directly through the air, or if you turn them more, they push more through the air. The, it has the equivalent effect to gearing. 
as you know from bicycles and cars and things, gearing really can also help with fuel efficiency. So this was a, another advantage that they had. So those uh, those three features, uh, I mean, they weren't first seen in the Comet, but they're maybe we could say popularized. We we mentioned that one of the requirements that Jeffrey de Havilland had for committing to producing the Comet was that three orders would be made. You had Grosvenor House flown by Scott and Campbell Black, uh, who later went on to win the race, or was the outright winner. You had the DH uh, idiot Comet Black Magic. And then there was a third, the Cathcart, Jones and Waller Comet. So the Grosvenor House and the Comet flown by Cathcart, Jones and Waller both finished. As we mentioned, the Grosvenor House winning the race. I think the Comet came in fourth place taking about uh, 108 hours to complete the race. So the, the winner was uh, Scott and Campbell Black in the Grosvenor House doing it in 71 hours and the the other Comet finishing doing it in 108 hours. Now the Black Magic that was just previously mentioned and mentioned in the trailer, they actually led the race early on before uh, running into engine trouble uh, near Allahabad and it was then that the Grosvenor House, the the Black Magic had left, uh, was the first to leave Mildenhall Aerodrome, and therefore being in one of the faster airplanes and being in the plane that ended up the same plane that ended up winning the race, uh, they'd set quite a good pace until running into the trouble, and it was then that uh, Scott and Campbell Black were able to overtake them. So what happened was the once the Black Magic had reached Karachi and was in front, they had some trouble with their landing gear. Uh, and then ended up making an unscheduled stop quite soon afterwards because of a wrong map. And so they stopped in Jabalpur to refuel. Now, they, because it wasn't a scheduled stop, all along the, the course there had been fuel depots set up by Shell to uh, refuel the planes. But there was no, of course, where, where they'd landed, there was, there was no fuel depot. And so what they did was take uh, petrol from uh, a local bus company. Now, as, as you might be able to guess, that the, the engine didn't like that very much and uh, one of their two engines broke down and so they managed to fly as far as Allahabad in India but dropped out at that point. Allahabad is pretty close to halfway between London and Melbourne. So pretty disappointing for them winning for the first half of the race and then having to drop out, drop out of that stage. Yeah, the the Grosvenor House winning as well, uh, finishing in less than three days, even though they flew the last stage of their journey with one engine throttled back because they were, I think they were getting a faulty reading from uh, an oil level indicator or something like that, oil pressure, sorry. The third comet, the one without a cool name, which was just G-A-C-S-R was its uh, call sign, they actually spent only a day in Melbourne after arriving and promptly turned around and flew back to London and they set a record for that round trip time of uh, 13 days, 6 hours. Scott and Campbell Black, who flew in Grosvenor House, the, the winners, would have been relatively well known before the race or before getting involved in the race anyway. Both being pilots, Scott was a Qantas pilot an Australian, uh, the Qantas, the Australian airline, and had actually set three speed records on the England to Australia route prior to the McRobertson Air Trophy or Air Race. And Campbell Black actually was involved in setting up an airline in East Africa, 
went on to be the personal pilot to famed horse breeder Lord Marmaduke Furness. I have, I have a quote from McPherson Robertson. He said, the day after the race began, Dear friends, early yesterday morning, before the sun had peaked over the horizon to disperse the mists enshrouding the Milton Hall Aerodrome in Suffolk, the competitors of the McRobertson International Air Race were awaiting the signal to start an epic flight of 11,323 miles. Never in the history of aviation has there been such a lineup of aviators, and never in the history of the world has there been such an aerial contest. He's also one of the clips in the trailer mm. to the podcast. You can hear him speaking in that. I have, a, I have a quote from uh, one of the accounts uh, from Baghdad, which was the first official stop, said that the Comet was able to fly there directly, but the, the Oiver, the, which was uh, a Douglas DC-2, had to stop three times beforehand. All the same, they managed to land only three hours behind the Comet. The quote from Baghdad was that Jim and Amy Mollison arrived in Baghdad deaf, hungry and very tired, whereas the crew and passengers of the Oiver were fresh as a daisy. The second and third place finishers were both American-built airliners. Mm -hmm. So you had a Douglas DC-2 and a Boeing 247, the KLM, so a a Dutch-owned Douglas DC-2 Oiver, meaning stork. The third-placed aircraft being the Boeing 247, it was American-owned. So part of Roscoe Turner's funding for the entrance into the McRobertson Air Trophy was to get sponsorship from commercial entities in the US, and one of those being Heinz. Uh, So he had Heinz 57 Varieties logo painted onto the nose of the plane. Oh, wow. Roscoe Turner uh, is a bit of a character... Uh, he, was, he was well known. He had a, a pet lion called Gilmore, who he used to bring flying with him. It, so, it sounds silly, but yeah, he, he really did. You, there are you know, photos and things of, of this guy sitting with his uh, goggles on with a small little lion, lion cub. <laughs> Indeed, there's uh, an Australian miniseries called The Great Heiress. It was done in the early 90s, and they have quite a humorous portrayal of uh, roscoe turner and i think in the scene where he's going to meet it may not be heinz but it's it's a scene where he's going to meet a company that might sponsor the the journey for them he brings his pet lion into the meeting to intimidate the um (laughs) the prospective sponsor both the second and the third place finishing planes were commercial airliners so the the first place obviously was won by the dh88 comet grosvenor house which was purpose-built for the race. But the fact that the other two closest finishers were commercial airliners, I think, says good things about where air travel was going and improvements and innovations that were being made at the time. Because I suppose you're, you're coming into the end of the golden age of aviation here and the start of modern air travel. As we mentioned before, the, if you wanted to go to Australia, really your only option was a ship or these these new services uh, like we said the klm you you could buy a ticket uh for the oiver and you could have flown from london to melbourne on that but uh it was really you know it would be like getting a, a spacex rocket ticket today you know it wasn't really the done thing if you're talking about the 1934 air race there's there's one incident the albury incident which uh makes a pretty good story and we kind of have to mention 
which is that the, the Oiver managed to get themselves into some trouble uh, towards the end of the journey when they were over New South Wales, got caught in a storm and ended up lost over this town called uh, Alvary. The residents of the town were following this. This was big news in Australia at the time. They heard a plane uh, high overhead, which was the which was the DC-2, and then they heard another plane much closer uh, over the eastern part of the town. And so, kind of sensing that something's wrong here, one of the local journalists phoned the race officials in Melbourne, said that, you know, we've found this plane, and the, the officials in Melbourne said, yeah, the... They're out of uh, radio contact. There's probably something wrong. This guy, Arthur Newenham, he headed to the local radio station and concocted a plan to, to save the Oiver. He's engaged the chief electrical engineer in the town, uh, Lyle Ferris, to go and flick the electricity supply of the town on, a, on and off so that all the street lights and all the house lights would flash on and off at the same time. And he did that. In Morse code, he spelt out the word Albury so that the over overhead without radio contact or a good idea of where they were would be able to pick it up, you know, just, just visually. Back in these days, people really could do Morse code just by looking and uh, they would realise that they're over Albury. Even worse, they uh, realised soon enough that the plane was in some difficulty and so over the radio, they organized people in the town to all drive down to the local racetrack and light it up with the headlights of their cars. The Oiver successfully landed, managed to get stuck in the mud of the racetrack, but uh, was pulled out by locals and uh, managed to set off the next day and fly on to win the handicap prize, which was very impressive. KLM, the Dutch airline, were very impressed with this. They made a large donation to the Albury Hospital and the mayor of Albury was awarded a title, the Order of Orange Nassau, which is, uh, you know, one of the, it's like a, an, you know, an OBE or something, but for the Netherlands. Once the Oliver had turned around to fly back, they flew low over the town and uh, dropped a message onto the race course that had a little Dutch flag and said, to all our good friends in Albury, we salute you and say farewell. The Oiver was low on fuel because of being lost, so uh, I'm guessing it was just flying around trying to figure out exactly where it was. Mm. Um, There's uh, one of the uh, people who went there with their cars to light up the racetrack for the, for the landing strip. They said, uh, Mrs. Schubert reports that one of the crew members got out of the Oiver and asked, is this Melbourne? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we actually didn't mention the name of the other US-built airliner, that the, the one that came in third, the Boeing 247D, flown by Roscoe Turner, Clyde Edward Pangborn, and Reader Nichols. It was called the Warner Brothers Comet, because in addition to Heinz, Roscoe Turner gained sponsorship from Macmillan Oil Company, as well as Warner Brothers and Heinz. Clyde Pangborn was the co-pilot, and I suppose the radio or navigator was Reader Nichols. They uh, had a, a second prize for the winners in the second place, according to this uh, handicap formula, which was, even at the time, a little bit controversial. The Stodarts, who were um, British pilots flying in an airspeed AS5 courier, raised some objections, and indeed it 
it appears that the formula, which was a little bit complicated, was applied incorrectly and the prizes were given out <laughs> incorrectly. Now, so somebody uh, has done a great deal of research on this. And so we'll, we'll just uh, link you to that if you want to read a lot of Excel spreadsheets where this guy goes through in painstaking detail and tries to replicate the mistakes made in 1934. Kenneth Stoddart objected to this, but he also said that um, Melrose is a splendid fellow and it would be would have been a pity to do him out of second place. In uh, the the route that um, the Ivor flew, so the uh, DC-2, the American-built um, mm-hmm. Dutch-flown plane, it yes. flew its regular 9,000-mile route, which was about 1,000 miles, miles longer than the official race route. Wow. So, so obviously they they were taking routes that were going to eventually bring them in that direction, but it's it's not like it fitted exactly to the route of the race. So the overall times, the winner, the comet Grosvenor House, Scott and Campbell Black, was sixty five hours. The next fastest at eighty three hours was the Oiver. Uh, yeah. After that, you have the Warner Brothers Comet, which is the name of a plane which was actually a Boeing two four seven D. So they called their plane a comet, but it's not a comet. (laughs) And that was flown by Turner and Pangborn. That came in after just about 93 hours. That Ivor also carried mail and Mm -hmm. apparently turned back once to pick up a passenger that was stranded. Um, So so in terms of like proving a concept or proving a point, given that it was a commercial airline carrying passengers the entire way, they didn't win the race, but coming in second overall and winning the handicap, all while doing it uh, with passengers on board and taking yourselves a thousand miles out of the way, it's pretty impressive, you know. So even though they didn't actually win the entire race, like they certainly proved something there, and proved that it was fa- it was capable of being fast and safe going long distances with commercial airlines, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. I think the the real winner here must must be the Oiver. Even though if if you'd uh, taken a commercial flight, uh, and then found that the plane had gotten lost and then stuck <laughs> in a racetrack, I don't think you'd be too pleased. <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah. I should also say that the, in the Netherlands they were very very pleased. They said that stamps were issued, songs were written. Uh, souvenirs were produced and even some babies were named Oiver J, newborn babies. You can you can ch- check out all these references on, on the website uh, because I think a lot of these stories, are, uh, I find them hard to believe. Wherever and whenever stories of epic achievements in aviation are recounted, the flight of the Oiver will be recalled, as also will be the part played by the citizens of Albury on that storm-swept night in October 19. 19- 34. Aside from, you know, the public spectacle of the race and the kind of excitement of the competition, the the two big outcomes were de Havilland had had really proved the design for the Comet and uh, would go on, as I said, to make the de Havilland Mosquito, which was uh, an important uh, plane for the RAF in the Second World War. And then Maybe even more importantly, uh, KLM and the Oiver had shown that uh, long-distance air travel was really accessible. You've been listening to Hard Hat History, a 
and that was part two of our two-part series on the golden age of aviation. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can check us out on our website at hardhathistory.com or catch us on Twitter or wherever you get your podcasts.